We're in Ezekiel chapter 39 tonight. Not sure what we're going to do when we get to uh, 48 chapters, I think. Ezekiel has 48 chapters. So maybe, um, I don't know, 10 or 12 more weeks, Lord willing. Um, we'll see. Ezekiel 39, verse 1. Hear God's holy word. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, I'll drive you on, I'll take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, all the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and then they will know that I am the Lord. My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out, and they make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows, arrows, war clubs, spears. And for seven years they'll make fires on them. They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest. They will make fires with the weapons, and they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who would pass by. So they will bury Gog there with all his hoard, and they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all of the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they'll make a search. As those who pass through the land pass through, and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the buriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. Even the name of the city, Hamona, uh, they will cleanse the land. For you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and all the beasts of the field, assemble and come together, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty kings, you'll drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan, so you will eat fat until you are glutted, and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. You will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid upon them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into the exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me, and I hid my face from them, so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness, according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them. 
I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my whole holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all of their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, and because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, and declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. There's much in this chapter, Almighty God, that makes us tremble, that makes us afraid. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us a proper fear of you, O God, and that you would diminish our fear of men. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is an interesting book. I, I, um, sometimes I have seller's remorse. Seller's remorse is when the pastor starts a series and halfway through he thinks, oh boy, I, I, maybe I bit off more than I can chew. Um, we've taken a few breaks in Ezekiel because it's, it's heavy plowing. Even I think I did this in the book of uh, Isaiah, maybe even Deuteronomy. Certain sections of the, of the Bible can, can, can just be very, very difficult to plow through and do them justice. There's lots of judgment in the book of Ezekiel. And in the very end, the first two-thirds of this particular chapter, for that matter, are judgment, judgment, judgment upon the nations. And then towards the second, the, 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 the last third of the passage, you have a promise of restoration of Israel. So there's a redemption. And through the book of Ezekiel, God is telling first, first 24 chapters, judgment against Jews. And then we have judgment against Gentiles. And woven throughout the passage, throughout the book, is the promise of mercy, uh, the mercy of God in Christ. You remember chapter 35, somewhere thereabouts, God says, I'm going to bring in my king, my Davidic messianic king, and he will be the one to restore his people. So mercy, but lots of judgment. And this is, this is it's interesting to me. I, I love learning and growing in, in God's word because then we learn and grow in who and what our God is. Uh, even the frightening passages cause us to grow in our knowledge of God. The title of this sermon I have is Gog is Defeated, Israel is Restored. That's true. Um, that should be the subtitle. I think the title should be uh, Armageddon, or more specifically, uh, the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, chapter 38 and chapter 39 are, are dealing with the Battle of Armageddon. There is a place w- where we have Gog and Magog is referred to in Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 39, and Gog and Magog are spoken of in the book of Revelation. And so I understand the Bible as progressive revelation, meaning that it starts off shadowy and it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And then from that hermeneutical principle, we study the Old Testament through the lenses of the New Testament. This is nothing new. St. Augustine said the new is in the old and seminal form. And then when you come to the new, it's the old in bud, in bloom. So this is something very, very common in the church. So I'm going to look at the book of Ezekiel through the lenses of the book of Revelation because of redemption, redemptive revelation, Bible is progressive in nature. So whenever the New Testament takes an Old Testament passage and says, this is what that is, 
This is what that is, if that makes any sense. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to look at this passage um, as the revelation of the battle of Armageddon. Um, Armageddon is used uh, one time in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 16, verse 16. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in just a bit. But that's what this is. This is, You see the warfare beginning in 38. And then what you see in 39 is really not a battle. Um, what would you call militarily when it's an utter rout? It's almost like a slaughter. And that's what this is. So you have all of the nations under this fellow who I think is symbolically mentioned, Gog. He's the leader. And, and later we'll talk about many, many nations come uh, and join league with him. And they're fighting against God and against God's saints. And God puts them down. It's a slaughter. And so chapter 39 is actually the, the carrying out of that slaughter. It's a very bloody picture, but this is here. Now, regarding um, the, the phrase Armageddon, in, in the Old Testament, there are a number of places where the word Megiddo is mentioned, book of Joshua 12, Joshua 17. And um, Megiddo was in the hill country of Ephraim. And the word Har in Hebrew means mountain, or hill. And then so Har Megiddo in Greek, Hellenized, is what we see in Revelation 16, 16 Armageddon. Um, to make the ha sound is a little, I used to know the, it's a little, it looks almost like a comma uh, up above. So um, uh, it would be ha, and then Har Megiddo is the mount of, of Megiddo. Megiddo in the Bible was, even though it was in the land of Ephraim, it was inhabited by the Canaanites. And so that's what we're looking. Let me read for us um, Revelation 16. Revelation 16, talking about this war, this battle, which we're looking at in Ezekiel 39. Revelation 16, 14. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war, for the great day of God all mighty let me let me keep reading there just to show you what we're looking at um, the spirit of demons behold i am coming like a thief jesus christ says blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about as as a naked and men will not see his shame and they gathered them together to the place which in hebrew is called armageddon armageddon mount megiddo and ezekiel 38 talks about this um confederation of nations coming under this fellow Gog who is a leader and we see this in Ezekiel 38 15 you will come from your hiding your place out of the remote parts of the north this is Gog again this is a real fellow and then the book of Revelation uses his name as a symbolic of of an enemy of God an enemy of God's people so a real fellow but he stands for much more than just this one particular man. Um, the remote part of the north, many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly, a mighty army. They will come against my people, Israel. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a great battle. And I would argue that this is, this is the war to end all wars. Was World War I referred to initially as the war to end all wars? And what did you have? How many killed in World War One? Six million? And then how many killed in World War II? 60 million, something like that. So clearly it wasn't the war to end all wars. There will be a war to end all wars. And that's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 are pointing forward. 
38 and 39 of Ezekiel are the precursor to what we see finalized in Revelation 16, 19, and 20 as a final battle. And and just so you know, uh, Christ wins, and for those in Christ, we win. Um, now, the way that as, um, this final battle is put in the book of Revelation, remember we're looking at this passage through the lenses of Revelation. As I mentioned, Gog and Magog are used in the book of Revelation. So however they use uh, that those words is what um, is meant when we see uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Let me read Revelation 27 for us. This is the key to understanding. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And here's the Gog and the Magog. Gog and Magog to gather them together for the word, for the war, excuse me. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came upon the broad plain of the earth. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's what Ezekiel 38 and 39 our uh, forecasting will happen. Um, so I'm arguing that Gog and Magog are being used figuratively or symbolically. Yes, real places currently, but they're standing for the great enemy uh, of, of God and of God's people. Remember the book of Revelation is probably the most symbolical book in the Bible. My wife and I are, are worshiping in our own family worship at home through the book of Revelation. I think we just read this afternoon uh, reread this afternoon uh, Revelation 16. Look at the language that's being used in Revelation. It's Old Testament language, but it's used to symbolize something the bowls of wrath, the plagues. And where do we see those things depicted in the Old Testament in, in, the, in Egypt? And the boils, and the plague of blood, the plague of darkness, taking Old Testament language and using it symbolically in the New Testament because it was always meant to forecast something greater than just a plague upon the Egyptians. And so Revelation does use this Old Testament language in a symbolical way. And it does that not just for Gog and Magog in this final battle. Think of Babylon. How is, was Babylon a real place? Yes. Were they a real enemy? Yes. The people of God in Ezekiel's time were actually subjugated by the Babylonians for seven years. So real place. How does Revelation use the term Babylon? Fallen, fallen is what? Babylon. So Babylon stands for, in the book of Revelation, and I would argue Peter does this in his epistles, she who is in Babylon greets you as the great enemy, as anti-God, anti-Christ, as a, as a tool of Satan, and God will put it down, the world system. God even uses the phrase, uh, where was Jesus crucified in the Bible? Jerusalem. And how does the Bible use in the book of Revelation, what does it say? Jesus was crucified in Sodom and Egypt, meaning Jerusalem. Paul uses in um, Galatians chapter 4, he says that the Jerusalem below is in slavery and the Jerusalem above is free. So the Bible does use certain real places and then uses them to express uh, in symbolism uh, larger spiritual truths. So when we're looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39, it is pointing forward to the war that will end all wars. Is there much about this that I don't understand exactly how it's going to come to pass? Yes, there's tons about this. I don't know exactly how it will be, how many enemies will be in league, what it will exactly look like, 
But I do know the larger truths, and I can say, thus saith the Lord to it, that God has enemies, that the people of God has enemies, and God's going to crush them and destroy them. So the larger truths, even though different churches debate over different things, this is not debatable. God has enemies, the people of God have enemies, and God and Christ will defeat all of them. This is meant for the, this passage, as terrifying as it is, is meant to comfort the people of God. No one will take you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. No weapon formed against a believer will be successful eternally. They can kill the body, but they can't do anything to the soul. And we're not to fear those who can just kill the body. We're to fear the one who can kill the body and, and damn the soul. So th- this is what we're looking at. And uh, what are some lessons that we learn from Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 39, with the overthrow of these anti-God, satanic enemies of God's people. What, what, what lessons do we learn? Well, one of the basic lessons that we learn it, it has to do with the nature of unconverted man. When I say unconverted man, what kind of people am I talking about? Unconverted man. What's unconverted man? Unconverted man is man apart from Christ. Man apart from God in Christ. Graceless man, I don't want to get into special grace and common grace, Graceless man, man apart from God, man apart from Christ, man who is still dead in their sins and trespasses. What we're looking at in both of these chapters is what God says natural man is like. We've all quizzed people that are our friends or family or not friends. Religiously, we say, so, so, so what do you think? Are people basically good or are people basically bad? What would you say? From the Bible... And from your own experience, our people, J.C. Rowell says, down in their hearts, and he's mocking this. He says, don't you tell me, you know, Bob cusses, Bob hates Jesus, but down in his heart, he's really a good man. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is unconverted man. And what is unconverted man? Unconverted man is not principally a hater of other men. He is principal. He is a hater of other men, but it flows out of a greater hatred. It's God. Unconverted, Christless, antichrist, spiritless man is a God hater. That's what this is. He's the enemies of God. This is a this is a Psalm twenty two, and the kings of the earth are rattling their sabers against the king of heaven and earth. And God looks at them and says, I am going to put you down. But they're thinking, we will be victorious against you. That's man. So when people say, you know, people are pretty good. Just with a little medication and education, they're probably going to be converted in like three or four minutes because they're really good. That's not the Bible. That's not the Bible. The Bible shows us what natural man really is. Natural man here... What do they want to do to God? What do they want to do to God? What does a natural man want to do to God? They want to kill God. God comes in the flesh. Jesus Christ. He went around doing good. He never committed one sin. What was the cry of natural man against the perfect human being? Crucify, crucify. And when they crucified, what did they do standing looking up at him? The perfect human who never hurt anyone. Why did you come down from the cross? They're mocking. That's man. And so this is here to teach us the nature of unconverted man. And what's interesting, 
when we look at the confederation of all of these various nations that put themselves under this one leader, Gog means covering or something like that, they put themselves under this one leader, people think, I mentioned it this morning, in Christ, there's no Jew, there's no, there's no Gentile, there's no black, there's no white, there's no free, there's no slave. We're all one in Jesus Christ. This is a Galatians chapter 3 towards the end of the chapter. And God saves from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. He makes us into one flock, John 10, verse 16. One flock. We like to think, well, people in, in India are way different than people in Ireland. And people in Africa are way different than people in China. Just way different. And, and Republican folks are way different than, than Democrat folks. They're just way different. We're just different. Beloved, all of these nations join league with one another and they all hate God and they want to kill God different languages, different backgrounds different colors, different cultures everything religiously they're the exact same religiously they're exact same you can, you can tell me a guy that has a million bucks in the bank, if he doesn't love Jesus I, I know what his nature is before God and you can give me a pauper a street sweeper who doesn't love Jesus. And you think, well, rich people are bad and good people are good. Poor, rich people, poor people are good. Oh no. If you're unconverted, none of those distinctions do anything to you religiously or morally. They all hate God. This is a Romans 3, 10 through 18. Why would, why would God need to tell the church this? Because he is telling the church this. This is what natural man is like. A lot of Christians, I'm not picking on any Christians, a lot of Christians don't read the Bible. A lot of Christians don't pray. Like, don't read the Bible at all. And so when you say, well, there's going to be a battle, and Revelation 14, there's going to be the wine press of whose wrath? The ra- Revelation 6, save me from the wrath of the who? The lamb. God says, call all the birds. To do what? To eat you. Is this true? Is this passage that I... Is this a true passage? Is this passage just as true as John 3.16? Is this true? This is true. So when God says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to call the birds and they're going to eat you. And, and, and then my name will be glorified. Is that true? Or is this something that like New Testament Christians don't look at? This is just as true as John 3.16. This is just as true as 1 John 4. God is love, 1 through 10. This is just as true. There are tons of people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe the God. I don't believe that kind of God. No, that's not my kind of distasteful. I don't believe that kind of a God. Well, here's the jam. God doesn't care what you think about him. (laughs) You, you, You ought to care what God thinks about you. God says, I am who I am, and here's who I am. And our duty is to do what? Believe it. Saving faith not only believes the promises of new life in Jesus Christ, but we tremble at the warnings and the threatenings of Almighty God. We believe the whole thing. I'm not saying that this this is not a fun passage. When I come here, I think, this is terrible. But it's true. And you see, when we start to say, yes, this part, no, this part, we put ourselves as judge over the judge of heaven and earth. We are the arbiters of truth. And that's a very bad idea. And lots of Christians reject this kind of a God because they're making up their own God like I did in AA. 
When I went to AA, we used to say, he's the God of my own what? Understanding. You know what that is? Not a God. So without the Bible going, what is God like? Who is he? You're going to come to the wrong conclusion. And not only do many Christian folks not read the Bible, and so they deny this kind of a passage, Battle of Armageddon, Jesus winning, putting down all his enemies, wrath, a holy, wrathful God against sinners. What do you think you are, Jonathan Edwards? They go to churches that don't preach the Bible. They don't read the Bible, and they make sure they go to a church that's not preaching the Bible. And how do you go to a church without preaching the Bible? Oh, they have a Bible, but and they're going to pull it out, and they're going to go, Daniel was brave, and you should be brave like Daniel. Amen? Amen. What is that? That's not what Daniel was about. Daniel is about the rock being taken out of the mountain, crushing all of the kingdoms of the earth. Read Daniel. That's what it's about. Daniel chapter 12, and they're going to rise to everlasting life and everlasting condemnation in Christ. Why would you go to a church that wouldn't preach the whole counsel of God's word? Why? Because you're not a pagan. You're not an atheist. You want to feel respectable. You want to feel like a Christian. And so you check the box. We want our view of God to be this. If we believe this, as Christian people, God is a holy God and he's going to pour out his wrath. And he, God says over and over, over again in this passage, through this particular war, which, as perplexing as it is, he said, I'm going to glorify my name. Does God take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Does God take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Yes or no? No. Does God get glory by the death of the wicked? Yes. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I know that because he says it in the book of Ezekiel. Why do I know he takes glory at the death of the wicked? Because he says it in Romans chapter 9. And what will, what will, be, what will glorify God on the death of the wicked here? His justice. His justice. In Revelation chapter 16, my wife and I walk through one of the songs of the angel when he's pouring out bowls of wrath and the angels break out, Righteous are you, O Lord. They vindicate God for this. And righteousness is a legal concept. It means that they, they earned this. They deserved it. God must punish sin, either upon Christ or upon the sinner. If we believe this about God as Christian people, what kind of people would we be like as Christians? What kind? We would be God-fearers. And what would we not be? We would not be man-fearers. I say it all the time. Every four years, the church puts their, ties their donkey to some Republican savior. Good luck, as John Calvin liked to say. We're man-fearers. Some man will save us. Some man will do this. Some man will do that. The reason we fear man so much is we don't fear God enough. And the reason we don't fear God enough is because we don't read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation 16 and 20. Should we as believers fear God? Yeah. Read Hebrews chapter 12. We should fear God. Holy, reverenced, awe. Even fear, fear. And so... I would argue the church needs to recapture this, that God has enemies, and natural man is an enemy of, of, of God. And then 
another thing that we are taught by this, just principally, as we're looking at it thematically, all of the nations gather together under this one leader to fight against God. And here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's put as the Israel of God. And in the book of Revelation 16 and 20, it's the saints. Who are saints? Saints are holy ones. How does a sinner become a holy one? You're found in Christ. It's the great substitutionary atonement. It's the great exchange. We all were conceived in our mother in sin, and we came forth from our mother as wretched sinners. And the only way we as a wretched sinner can be considered holy is to have our wretched sin placed on Christ and have his holiness imputed to us in justification and then infused in us in our sanctification. One is forensic, legal, external justification. The other is internal, actual, and moral sanctification. It's holiness. So God tells his people, not only does natural man hate me, they hate you who love God in Christ. One of the reasons the church collectively and Christians individually fail so much in life. We give in to the temptations of the devil and we we fail um, in in the spiritual warfare that we're in is we have the wrong posture. Um, Some of us grew up fighting. I grew up fighting. I lost every fight in my entire life because I was just weak and a lousy fighter. But we, I fought. But I grew up losing. There's a certain posture that you want to take at least if you want to not take a complete beating you want to have a right posture in your fighting, right? Right. And you have to have a right process. This big guy that I'm looking at means to knock my block off, and he's not my friend. One of the difficulties that the modern church has, and you can see this the way that the church does church, we think that the world is our friend. We think that the world's ways are actually neutral, and we can co-opt them or Christianize them. I think that's a farce. What happens is the, 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 the church becomes the world. We think the world is our friend. And the Bible says in the book of James, chapter 4, if you as a professing believer make yourself a friend of the world, what do you make yourself regarding God? You're an enemy. We are to love people. We're to love non-Christians. We're to love our enemies. We're to love our friends. We're to love our neighbor. We are, we are, we are to be some love-muffin people as Christians. Love God and love man. But the world is not our friend. TV is not neutral. The movies are not neutral. The radio is not neutral. Who owns it for the most part? Who owns it? Turn it on. What sells cars and popcorn and TVs? Filth. We have to have the right posture. And here God tells us they want to kill you. They want to kill you. If, date, if the devil was let loose, apart from the government of Almighty God in Christ, he would kill us. Am I not right with that? So this is what I mean, the right posture. If we just biddy-bop through life, if you biddy-bop through life, you're getting your head handed to you as a Christian. And if you're a, a dad or a mom, and you're training your kids, you better train them. Son, daughter, the world is not your friend. They're actually your enemy. They don't mean good for you. Well, Dad, you know, I met a buddy, and sure, he's a whatever, and he hates Jesus, but he's my, he's my paisan, he's my buddy. Which he's he's, he's going to be friends with me. Oh, no, he's not. That man is going to hurt you physically, spiritually, every way. 
J.C. Rowell, his book on uh, advice to young men, he says to, to guys there, but we'll apply it to girls, you want to be happy and go to heaven, you better be careful who you marry. You marry an unbelieving girl, it is, you're going to heaven as a Christian person, but you're going there with a knot on your head crying. She can hurt, she can really help you, and she can really hurt you. The same goes for the boy. Girls do this all the time. I'm going to marry that handsome boy over there. Does he know Jesus? Yeah, he said Jesus once. You did not or not marry him. Because he's not, you're not. What, what does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 18? Come out from among them and be you what? Separate. What fellowship does Belial have with, with Christ, with the children of darkness? You're going to marry a child of darkness? This is what they're wanting to do. You see it all the time. Christian who marries non-Christian whoever. And then what happens to church? What happens to family worship? When the kids come, what happens? You're going to be raising a little heathen. That This is this. So God tells the church, this is natural man. They want to kill me. And he tells the church, and they want to kill you. And the right response is that we should be separate from the world. Not I'm against communes, as you know, but separate in our affections. And then God goes through the language of, he told in, in Ezekiel 38, and halfway through Ezekiel 38, he actually mocks them. He says to Gog, Gog is the place, Magog is, uh, Magog is the place, Gog is the guy. He says, go ahead, get all your confederation, get all your weapons and all of this. Let's see how you're going to do. That's God mocking. Again, this is the God of the Bible. This is a Psalm 2. And man thinks, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. And God says, I'm fairly sure, sure you're not going to win. And then God walks us through. This is, for the, this is to threaten the unbeliever and to comfort the believer. And he says halfway through that, that, that portion, that um, he says halfway through that portion in this apocalyptic final battle, this is a day when God, this is something else that isn't usually mentioned. What is the wrath of God? When I ask you, what is the wrath of God? What is the wrath of God? Is The wrath of God deals with God's offended justice. It's his holy, righteous anger. Old and New Testament present God when he is confronted with man apart from Jesus. In Jesus, there's no more wrath. This is Romans 8.1. Apart from Jesus... All human beings, read, read the last two verses of John chapter 3. The wrath of God abides upon you. It is the, the offended, righteous anger of God against a sinner. That is the sinners in the hands of an angry God. I just finished a book on revival and re- revivalism. And dealing with revivals, one of the older men said, The revivals, the earlier revivals, produced stronger Christians because there was a great heart conviction over sin. Whereas the older revivals, the 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 newer revivals, used methodology to diminish sin to get quicker results. The earlier revivals laid a heavy emphasis on the holiness of God and his hatred against sin and against the explication of sin and thus the presentation of the Savior. And the men said it produced a solid Christian. Whereas when there was little talk about sin and the holiness of God, just say yes to Jesus. It produced a lot of people saying yes to Jesus. 
but not a lot of Christians. I'm not a hellfire preacher. I, I don't feel I'm a hellfire preacher. This is the day of vengeance. This, this day pointing, is pointing forward to Revelation 20. This is the day of vengeance. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of judgment. And for those apart from Jesus, they will get the wrath of God for their sins. I mentioned it this morning. All of us have sins that we really hate. They're not our own. It's the guy sitting next to us. Those sins are like, ugh, disgusting. Ugh, I can't even believe it. Ugh. Our sins, ugh, they're character defects, picky you and faults. They're bad, but not really bad. Beloved, if we knew the holiness of God and what sin is before him, Oh, it's an infinite offense. I I think it's Whitfield says it's a rape of God. It's a rape of it's 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 grotesque the way that Whitfield paints it. It's such an offense against an infinite God. And what does it deserve? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Either Christ takes that, or they take it. Someone will, someone will bear the wrath of God. Either Christ as the wrath bearer or these people as the wrath bearers. And I want to end with something which I think is nice. That very last section, God says, I'm going to bring my people all back. And, and yes, it means from Assyria, 722. It means from Babylon, from the, the Assyrian captivity, from the Babylonian captivity. Yes, that really occurred. But that's not the end of it. Read Hebrews 11. They're looking for the celestial city. The promised land is not a patch of, of renovated dirt in Palestine. The promised land is after this. So we have warfare. It crescendos in a time of fierce tribulation. And then the eternal estate. And God says, God says you're going to be burning their spears for seven years. It's, hyper, it's hyperbole. It's, it's figurative. And what does he mean there? There's no more war. There's no more war. Why is there going to be no more war? Verses 6 through 11. Because you're going to be burying them for seven months. Purbly, hyperbole, figurative. There's no more warriors. Beloved, when will men beat their spears into plowshares? When will men study war no more? When will all of God's children be gathered in from the four corners of the earth? When will that occur? Right after this battle. When the trumpet sounds and Christ comes back and men will study war no more. The hope of the church. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.